Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I chat with chef Vivian Howard, author of Deep Run Roots. We discuss the food of eastern North Carolina, from banana pudding to Tom Thumb sausage, and why locals are not impressed with fancy chefs from New York. I have a sister who, despite all of my professional success in the kitchen, I would not dare bring a dessert anywhere near her house because she would just sneer at it. She would sneer so hard, it would melt. (laughs) Also coming up, we dig into pork and kimchi stew, and we share a tip for giving new life to stale bread. But first, it's my interview with computational scientist L. O'Brien, who programs computers to write recipes. L, how are you? I'm doing excellent. How about you? Good. This is an interesting segment, uh, because I've spent my whole life trying to optimize recipes like the chocolate chip cookie. You wrote something called Baking the Most Average Chocolate Chip Cookie, which is mm-hmm. something quite different. And so you use three totally different approaches. So, so what are those three mathematical slash scientific approaches? Sure. One of them is that um, I got together about, it was about 200 chocolate chip cookie recipes that I scraped off the internet. And the first approach was that I just tabulated all of the ingredients that were used. And I um, I just averaged them, just a straight up average like you learn in math class in school. 
But that came up with some really odd things like 0.002 cups applesauce or 0.005 teaspoon white pepper. So how does that approach end up with weird ingredients like that? Yeah, so one thing is that um, I found that it's actually pretty common that people like to throw in a little secret ingredient like the applesauce or the pepper. And I suspect that comes down to the feeling of owning your cookie, you know, that this is secret, that this is yours. And so I would find that maybe one out of every, you know, the 200 recipes would have just a pinch of black pepper. And so when you average it over 200 recipes that don't contain it and one that does, you end up with a really, really small number. And so when you came up with this recipe, you said it had 60 ingredients. So so did you actually make that recipe or did you cut out some of the, the smaller amounts? No, I mean, I did. I went to the supermarket. It cost me like $75 to pick up all the ingredients. I did. And then I got like tweezers and um, (laughs) little tiny pipettes so I could get some of the right amounts. There was one casualty and it's that I did forget to put in a marshmallow, but there was nothing intentionally left out. So you you baked it, and and what happened? You know, it was a surprisingly good cookie. Um, I didn't taste most of the weird ingredients. Like every now and then, I'd kind of get a mouthful where I was like, huh, I am tasting a little something unusual. But for the most part, I really didn't taste anything that weird. I I was pretty happy with it. Uh, Okay, so number two, the predictive text cookie. How does that work? Sure. So predictive text, um, the best example of that is like what you use on your phone when it suggests words for you. So it just tends to look at like, oh, you know, these words tend to go together. Like I say, I'm going to the store. And so it just learns like, you know, those words tend to follow one another or put the chocolate chips in the bowl. So it'll learn those words tend to follow one another. Um, And so just by basically using all of the recipes that I have and just training this model to learn, starting with one word, what's the next most likely word, um, then I can get it to produce recipes, just spit them out. And how, how good was this cookie versus the mathematical average cookie? Ooh, Oh, it was it was lacking. Um, so the recipe that we ended up with had it was something like four cups of shortening, and then a whole bunch of brown sugar, just a stupid wait, amount wait, wait, of brown wait. sugar. Four cups of shortening. Yeah. And how much flour? <laughs> it's a lot. Um, I don't remember the flour count, um, but not enough. The ratio was really off. So, did, what did it look like when it came out of the oven? Did it spread all over the place, or? Oh, my God, yes. It was just this big, like it browned nicely because there was so much brown sugar, um, but it just spread. It was absolutely enormous. It did cook. It kind of held its shape, but it tasted awful. I mean, it really tasted like shortening. (laughs) Gee, I I can't imagine why. Um, Okay, so so the mathematical (laughs) average did pretty well. The predictive text cookie was kind of a disaster. And then, then you moved on to the third, which is really interesting, called the neural network cookie. How do you do that? So um, a neural network is a piece of AI and you know, artificial intelligence. And so it, it's a bit of software or an algorithm that takes a whole bunch of text that I put in and it learns the sequence of letters. Um, so just by giving it a list of recipes, it learns how to format a recipe. It learns that it always starts with a list of ingredients. It has a rough idea about how long the instruction should be and about how long the ingredient list should be. So it's it's uncanny, but the reason why it's so often wrong is that 
It doesn't have any kind of concept of what a cookie is. It doesn't know what the end product is. And so it has no problem telling you to add sugar four times. It has no sense of ratios of the proportions that things ought to be in. It'll constantly leave out key ingredients like eggs. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a creative spaz. So, so this is supposed to be deep learning, but obviously of the three approaches, this may have been the worst. <laughs> it was certainly the least like a cookie. I, I think it's a very compelling technology, but the important thing is that it doesn't have any sense of what a cookie ought to be or what ingredients need to be in the cookie to give it that true cookiness. It just doesn't get that. It's completely out of its sense of understanding of the world. So you, you use three techniques, the mathematical average, the predictive text, the neural network. Uh, what you're really trying to do, I think, if I can pull way back, is... There's an argument about the brain, right, and whether the brain is just a computer and that at some point in time, everything the brain does can be replicated by a computer. Other people would say the brain is more than a computer. It can make leaps beyond just computations through some sort of creative process or the soul or whatever you want to call it. So Big Blue with chess, because chess is so highly regulated as a process, was able to beat a human. I wonder if what you're trying to do with food, maybe food, there is more art to food than there is art to chess, and it's not purely computational. Is that possible? Yeah, well, I think it's both. I do think that computers can be creative, but the sense of appreciating what's been created by a computer is something that only a human can provide. So I think the computer is endlessly creative in that it can give me a thousand new chocolate chip recipes, but the sense of value is something that I impose as the human to say, this is, you know, you're sure you can make me a thousand, you can make me 10,000 chocolate chip cookie recipes, you can do that in a minute, but only some of them are worth my time. Well, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit better about my choice of profession at this point. Um, a little bit. Al, thank you so much. I've, I've, I've learned a little bit about science uh, and predictive technologies. And could you send me your recipe for the average chocolate chip cookie? We'll try it at Milk Street and I'll let you know. Yeah, thanks so much. That was computational scientist Elle O'Brien. Her article for The Pudding is called Baking the Most Average Chocolate Chip Cookie. Milk Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, and wherever you get podcasts. It's time to tackle your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television and also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? I am looking forward to it. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Bonnie. Hi, Bonnie. Where are you calling from? Oak Bluffs, Massachusetts. How can we help you today? So I was um, going through some old papers of my mother's, and I found a reference to something that uh, her family used to have on holidays back in the, when she was a child, so it would be the 1920s, 1930s, and it's a steamed cornmeal pudding. And it was served with turkey gravy over it, and it was sliced. She never made it for us, and so I don't know anything more about it, but I can't find any reference to a savory steamed cornmeal pudding anyplace. Where did your grandmother come from? So 
So my grandmother was from Northern Ireland, but my mother was born in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and my grandmother married um, a man in Plymouth, Massachusetts. So okay. that's where they live. Well, it, it sounds like it's got sort of, you know, British-Irish roots. Well, They're I mean, all about steam puddings. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, still today in London, dessert is puddings. They but refer dessert. to as puddings. My point is that steaming a mixture of flour, milk, or some other liquid and other contents is just a standard recipe with thousands of variations. Right. When they got here in the early days, cornmeal, flour was hard to get. The Midwest hadn't been opened up yet. Yeah. Flour was very expensive, wheat flour, so they used cornmeal. So it's very likely they steamed a corn mush of some kind, maybe threw some eggs in it to have it set up properly, steam it for uh-huh. two or three hours, and they would slice it. It was one of those universal recipes, and you could certainly substitute cornmeal for flour and make okay. a steamed cornmeal pudding versus a regular pudding, and it would be savory, sure. The weird thing is, though, oh. I've never heard of a savory steamed pudding. Sure. You have? Well, yeah. If you go back in time, actually, they were all savory. Really? Yeah, because they were cooked in a stomach or they were cooked in other parts of the animal. The fact of the matter is they were all savory. It was a way of cooking lots of bits and pieces together at one time. And also, don't forget, they had boiled puddings because they just had a big vat of water, right? They didn't have ovens. So they would wrap it in something. A How cloth. do you know this? Um, I spoke to a woman who was an expert in Old English cookery about a year ago on the show. Wow. Amazing. You actually listened to her. I, I was fascinated. And so uh, <laughs> then, then the sweet puddings came along much later, like 19th century, but early days. It was a way of taking bits and pieces and leftovers and putting them together and cooking them in water so they'd hold together in a pudding. Oh, that's really great. What kind of template could Bonnie use to make this? It sounds like she, you want to make this, don't you? I do, I do. It's sort of like making, look, um, may I make an analogy? It's polenta, really. I mean, polenta, you cook it, it hardens up, you slice it. You have sliced polenta is a thing. It's been a thing for hundreds of years. So it's really not that different. This is is exciting to hear. I've done my work today. I can go home. Yeah, you can. I'm (laughs) very impressed. (laughs) Bye, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks, Bonnie. Bye-bye. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Josh from Merrimack, New Hampshire. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm pretty good. How can we help you? Uh, well, every day my mom has someone in my family uh, grind coffee beans in a hand-crank burr grinder yep. for coffee. Uh-huh. And we have an electric blade grinder, but my mom claims the even cut of the burr grinder improves the flavor of her coffee. Yep. Is there evidence to back that claim? I'll make this quick. She's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the blade grinder has those two blades, and it chops up the beans in sort of a regular sizes. So you have big chunks and you yeah. have very fine chunks, yeah. which is why you end up with mud at the bottom of your coffee. Right. And you, so you don't get a clean cup of coffee. Burr grinder's going to give you an even grind and that'll give you a much cleaner, brighter cup of coffee. Yes. I mean, you yep. get, because you get all that stuff at the bottom. I'm, and I have to say, I for years have used the blade grinder and I'm, I'm getting ready to turn around because it's just crazy. It's like Turkish coffee and you didn't impl- what, intend to have what, Turkish coffee. On, Sarah, well, hold on. What? You just said that the burr grinder is better. Yes. You get a lousy cup of coffee, and then you said, I still use a blade grinder. Well, you know, burr grinder's <laughs> more expensive if you get a good one, and, you know, I'm When's cheap. Your, when, when your birthday's coming up, Paul? Yeah, it is. Oh, I'm going to tell it's you. It's 70 or 80 bucks, right, for a burr yes, grinder? Yes, exactly. Yeah, instead of 20. Exactly. Anyway, it's worth the money. Yes, I think so, Joshua. Yep. Sorry. Okay. Got to go for it. Yo, by the way, my mom listens to Milk Street, and she really respects your guys' opinion. Thank you for answering the question. My pleasure. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you have a question about using olive oil in your cake or salted butter in your pie crust, give us a call. That's 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? This is Melissa from Bemidji, Minnesota. Hi, Melissa. What's your question today? So I have a frozen venison liver from deer hunting that I'm not quite sure what to do with. How did you get the liver? Let's start with that. I helped my dad with hunting every year, and Mm -hmm. um, when we went to pick up the deer, I saw the liver in the gut pile. It seemed like such a shame to waste it. I've been in kitchens my whole life, and so I know a lot of technique, but I always enjoy a challenge, and liver is something I've never really dealt with before, and I was thinking about smoking it, or maybe dehydrating it in a jerky. I just didn't want to I don't think it. I would do that because this is a very delicate meat. What I would do is to saute it in a very hot skillet of fat and then... Cook it like calf's liver. Yeah, just saute it on both sides and have a little dressing of onions like they do in France or a little vinegar, some herbs. Mustard. Some nice coarse salt. I would barely cook it. I don't know about the health issue with venison and liver, assuming there is no health issue. I would cook it fast and just get it out of the pan and and have a very quick skillet sauce. I know that venison can be gamey, and maybe it would be a good idea to soak it in milk overnight to begin with and then pat it dry. And I agree with Chris. I would saute it, maybe even dip it in some flour to get a little bit of a crust on it, some Wondra flour. Uh, which is the instantized flour that our grandmothers used to use to thicken gravies, and it gives it a nice crust on the outside. And Syrah, I agree with Chris. I don't know about how healthy it is to eat the liver. I would think actually be healthier than eating a liver from a mass-produced. You're probably right. Uh, farm. Check. I won't be eating it. <laughs> oh, really? You're just so cooking well, it. I'm a vegetarian. I, oh. I just, what? You're um, a vegetarian, and yeah. you help your dad hunt? That's so interesting. Yeah. Well, I grew up doing the hunting and raising farm animals, and that's why I don't eat meat anymore is because I don't have access to the local stuff that I used to source. And so, but I still find it a really great tradition. So, Well, you're the only vegetarian I've spoken to or met who knows what a gut pile is and has <laughs> actually <laughs> taken a liver out of one. You were talking about a high heat application. What about a wood-fired oven if I suck it in the skillet inside a really hot oven? Well, I would preheat. I'd use the cast iron skillet and preheat so you get it that like you sear. would with cornbread. So you get yeah. that sear, yeah. You, you want a good hot sear, and you get that. The Wonder Flower is a good idea. You want a little bit of a crust to give you some texture on the outside. Right, and then I would slice it fairly thin, Right. you know, like a quarter inch or something at an angle. I imagine it's quite rich, and you just want a little bit and then some nice sauce on it. Like Chris said, I w- actually, I would add some heavy cream to that. So acid, yeah. onions, mustard, yeah, vinegar, herbs. V- vinegar really cuts like, through the fat. Like a reduction with yeah. shallots reduction. and vinegar yeah. and then throw in some mustard and cream. And Okay, yeah, I just wanted to cook it outside in the wood oven so my house doesn't smell like it. <laughs> There's one other thing you could do. Uh, I was recently in, in Mexico, Oaxaca, and for breakfast they have these little carts and they take a tortilla and they fill it with scrambled eggs with liver and serve that as a taco for breakfast, uh, oh, which is quite okay. good. How's the liver prepared? It's just chopped. You know, it's mixed in with the eggs. Yeah. And that was actually delicious. Anyway. Okay. Give that a shot. Well, you guys have really given me some ideas. Well, one of the more interesting questions I'd say we've gotten in a while, so thank you. 
We've never said the term gut pile on radio. No, this so now, is true. Now, now this we've, is true. We've gone there and we've done it. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Thanks for calling. Check it off the list. All right. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, bye. Thank you. This is Mo Street Radio. Give us a call anytime. We'll try to answer your question. 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Andrea from Olympia, Washington. Hi, Andrea. How can we help you today? Well, I was in my local co-op recently, and I came across some limes that were unlike any limes I'd ever seen before. They were about the size of a golf ball. They were really dark green in color, very lumpy and bumpy. And I picked up about a half dozen, and I took them home. And in my car on the way home, I was completely overwhelmed with the aroma and the fragrance. It was really incredible. So I sort of thought I could just substitute them for regular limes. So for example, I've used the juice and the zest in a lemon-lime drizzle cake, and I've used them in a lime sable sandwich cookie, and the flavor's just a bit off. Very Um, different. Yeah, it's like a whole different flavor. It's more savory, I guess, is how it's coming across to me. These kefir limes, I assume that's what they are. Well, um, I wanted to ask you, did you ask them what they're called? They had them labeled as makrut lines. Yeah, right. Same thing. And they used to be called kafir, but that's a pejorative word in South Africa. So they changed it to makrut. But some people know it as kafir. I wouldn't use it as a substitute for lime juice. It's used in curries. It's used in savory applications. The zest in particular is very strong. So that's what I would do with it. I wouldn't, you know, if, you, if you're doing it as a drizzle on a you know, one-layer cake, I wouldn't use it for that. I agree. What's used even more than the zest is the leaves. Right. I've used the leaves in a Thai green curry. It tastes great in that dish. Right. I make a lemonade with a kefir lime syrup that is just killer. Mm. So I think the trouble is the juice is just not going to do it for you. But okay. the, the zest is good. Yeah. And see if you can get, if they've got the limes, they've probably got the leaves and just get them to give you the leaves too. Yeah, they freeze I've well. I've able to get the leaves at my Asian grocery mm-hmm. store. I store those in my freezer and that's great because they'll just last forever and, you know, you can throw five or ten into a curry. But this was my first time seeing the actual limes in the produce section. And so I just was really intrigued by them. Thank yeah. you. I love listening to you guys so much. I really love it when you have your strong opinions. And as a listener, it's really fun when you two disagree and we get to hear Sarah, why. have we ever disagreed about anything? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Maybe once or twice. <laughs> you know, the good news is, and it's sort of fun, is that you can have two people who can disagree and it makes you realize there's no one right way, really. You guys are willing to take opinions on things like Silpat, for example. I've always hated Silpat. I hate Silpat. It's hard to clean, but I thought, well, to get professional results, I have to use this. Once you guys said, no, you can just use your parchment. Parchment. I have gotten rid of all my Silpat. I use my parchment. You know, it's perfect. I'm glad we liberated you. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) That'll be on my stone. (laughs) You don't need Silpat. You don't need Silpat. Relax. You don't need Silpat. Well, Andrea, thanks for calling. calling. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Take care. Bye. So we argue, huh? I thought the takeaway was I'm always right, but I guess not. No, I don't think so. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Okay, okay. (laughs) Not. 
This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Vivian Howard, chef and author of Deep Run Roots. We'll be right back. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today I chat with Vivian Howard, author of Deep Run Roots. Vivian gave up a career in New York to return to North Carolina, where she lived in a shack for two years, started a fancy restaurant, and then found success when she came to terms with the food and the community of her hometown, Deep Run. Let's start with this obvious question. Where is Deep Run? Just put it on the map for us. Deep Run is uh, about an hour and a half east of Raleigh and about an hour west of the coast. Okay. So um, the coastal plain. So uh, you lived in New York, and this notion of moving down to Deep Run where you'd grown up in that area, uh, you had to give up a lot, as you said, in your book, in your cookbook, but you obviously got something in return. So what did you give up and what did you get back? Well, you know, when I left here when I was 14, I, I, I was certain that I would never move back, and moving back would have meant failure uh, because I wanted to live in a city. I, wanted, I thought all success happened in cities. So when I came back, I felt like I had lost the opportunity to be successful and to, to do quality work. Um, but what I learned after being here for a while was that I probably couldn't do what I wanted to do anywhere else and um, being back home and surrounded by the, the food and the people of my youth really inspired me. Yeah, I, I, it was interesting because you said uh, there was a the equivalent of a hunting shack, I don't know what you want to call it, on a small creek or river that I think your father used to go to just get away for some quiet Yes, we time. call it his, his nap shack. There you go. Uh, so you were there uh, living for a couple of years, you know, in Manhattan, one month hunting shack the next month, but you you praised it. You you loved doing that. But what was that really like in the first month? Well, we were we were pretty fatigued by life in the city, 
And so I, I remember the first few months of living here, we had on definitely rose-tinted glasses because everything seemed better. You know, we went to the Food Lion, and somehow the produce looked better than it did at the Green Market in Union Square. You find what you want to find in a situation. And so in this situation, when we moved here immediately, we found a slower pace. We found free rent in the Snap Shack, and we found that living in nature, no matter how close it was, at least for that period of time, was more enjoyable than living in the city. It was a little later, uh, maybe three or four months in, when the produce at the Food Lion started looking like produce at Food Lion. Yeah, you know, what I, one of the things I like about your book is your writing. You don't sugarcoat it. Um, one, of my, one of the great lines in the book is, we live a slow-paced life here. You're referring to people who talk about the South that way. And then you say, that sounds great, but I don't know where those nicer, slower-paced people live. It's certainly not yeah. near me. So you yeah, you know, I think oftentimes when you read about the South or people, you know, tell stories about the South, it's not people really from the South telling those stories or there's some other sort of agenda. But my goal is to show Southerners, at least the people around me, as the, you know, multidimensional people that they are. You know, they're not mystical fairies who live a slower life, <laughs> and they're also not bumbling idiots. Uh, we're all somewhere in between, and I, I believe that people who live in rural America have a different type of wisdom than people who live in urban America. Right. And that is just what I have tried to convey in the book. In cookbooks from the South, the use of cornmeal or Indian meal, as sometimes referred to, continued for some time. In the North, because we had access to wheat from the Midwest, I think, more readily because of railroads than you did, uh, cornmeal came and went pretty readily. By the time you get to Fanny Farmer in the late 19th century, there's very few cornmeal recipes. So was corn part of the South because everyone grew some of it and you had less access to wheat flour? Or it was just because it was such an important part of the culture? What, why did it still go on to today as being much more important in the South? Well, I think it's corn um, has since day one been a cornerstone of the diet here. You know, it was a huge part of the Native Americans diet. They showed us how to farm it and mill it and then cook with it. And things like cornbread and grits really became staples here. And I think also the fact that so many of our communities surrounded grist mills and the grist mill had a moonshine still somewhere on the property. I think it was just a more integral part of our culture. I think we had less access to wheat flour because we had less interest in wheat flour. And corn is a cornerstone of the Southern diet, uh, any way you slice it. So, you know, the, the hog killings... Uh, which in Vermont would happen in late September because it was cool. But I guess in the South, you might wait for it was until it was colder out. But there was just some things you did with pigs. I mean, everyone used the whole pig, of course, but liver pudding, not something I think is familiar in New England. Wait, what is Tom Thumb? You mentioned that. Tom Thumb. So the thing that's distinct, I would say, about what we do with hogs down here is that Air-dried sausage or sausage is really our country ham. And yes, we cure hams and make country ham, but the crown jewel of eastern North Carolina hog killing would be a Tom Thumb sausage. So families would 
chop up much of the pig and make their family sausage mix, which would generally have, you know, sage, thyme, red pepper flakes, black pepper, salt. And, you know, every family would have their own version of that. And some of it would go to make fresh sausage. Some of it would be bulk sausage. And some would be air-dried sausage that would hang in the cure house for a period of time and shrink and develop flavor. And that's what we would use to season greens. Um, and the special sausage that would have been made from that is called Tom Thumb. So you would take that that regular sausage mix and stuff it into the pig's appendix. So oftentimes when families would have these hog killings, they would kill about three pigs. So you'd have three Tom Thumbs. And the hog killing would probably happen a little after Thanksgiving. And you would hang the Tom Thumb in the smokehouse until New Year's. And in that time, it would shrink and develop flavor and and end up being about two and a half pounds. And then on New Year's Day, you would boil the Tom Thumb and then take it out uh, and use the the pot liquor or the broth left from making the Tom Thumb to cook cabbage or peas and then slice the Tom Thumb, pan fry it, and display it out around your cabbage or your collards and your field peas. And that would be like a good luck celebration lunch for New Year's. Your, I think, grandmother went into a nursing home. Is that right? At one point? Um, Yes. And you talked about that process and you walked around uh, and found a fig tree, sat down underneath it and ate figs. Um, Could you just talk about that? Because this book is about family and about place. Sure. Yeah. I moved back here and shortly after opening the restaurant, my grandmother got really sick and we moved her to a a nursing home and I had up until that point totally planned on leaving here you know we were going to get the restaurant up and running and gain some valuable experience maybe save some money and go somewhere else but when I walked my mom into this nursing home and I saw my grandmother I felt as if I had to stay And the figs, growing up here, I had never had a fig off of a tree. I didn't think that's something that people in eastern North Carolina ate. I thought they, I thought the Pope ate them, you know, like (laughs) people in California, (laughs) but certainly not us. So I always kind of identify that moment of deciding to stay here sort of out of a familial responsibility with this fig tree. So let's talk about your recipes. I made the breakfast in the car for my 17-month-old. <laughs> so, so you take a piece of bread and roll it out to it's an eighth of an inch thick, uh, make a pecan butter and a food processor, a little honey and salt, slather that on with some sliced bananas and roll it up. So I really like that. That was great. But you also have apple and scallion oyster ceviche. We, just give me a sense of your cooking. So if I walked into your restaurant, what what is it I would find there? Well... You know, my cooking kind of evolves over time, and I think it is going through a period where it's getting simpler and simpler. But the the recipes in the book, you know, every chapter is about an ingredient. And I wanted there to be a recipe in every chapter that spoke to every skill level out there. So something very simple, like teaching you how to boil an egg in the egg chapter, to a pretty complex recipe, which is my banana pudding that takes yeah but that looked really good 
I'm sorry. It is, I, but it's not for everybody to do. You know, it's it requires a little more skill than boiling an egg. But the oyster and scallion ceviche with apple is absolutely the type of thing that you would see in my restaurant. Um, or the oyster roosters, which is basically an oyster on a pork skin <laughs> with pickled jalapeno tartar sauce would be something that you would you will see in my restaurant. Yeah, here's a question I have. You know, there's a lot of books like Year in Provence or what you've done with Deep Run Roots where people think there's another life out there they can they can go to or go back to that's more appealing than the, what they're doing now. The grass is always greener. But to go back to my first question about what you gave up and what you gained, um, what is it like to go back to a town you couldn't wait to get out of when you were 14, back to the Baptist church, right? back to the socials, back to all those connections with family. Is there a, there's a hard part of that too, I would have to think. What's the hard part of that and how did you deal with it? You know, the hard part is coming back to a place that is not necessarily ready to accept what it is you want to do here and feeling like, the possibilities are not endless, you know. My mom always told me, you can do whatever you want to do. Well, I didn't think that I could do that here. And in small towns in rural America, uh, there are not as many opportunities for people. And that that is a, a hard thing. And for us as restaurateurs, there was no understanding of the type of restaurant we wanted to build among the people we were trying to hire. So the training and the preparation for what it is we wanted to do, I think, was was more challenging. But what I've noticed is that as an adult with children, my desires and what I require are much different than what I, I required when I was 23 looking to have an em- endless mimosa brunch in, you know, downtown Manhattan. <laughs> uh, in coffee hour after church in my town, I-, I learned early on it's really important not to outdo people in the food. So if most people are bringing leftover Entenmann's cake, you know, to the coffee hour, you shouldn't go, like, cook a bunch of, you know, old-fashioned nutmeg donuts, you know, and coconut oil. <laughs> Because uh, they really aren't going to like that. Do, do you find things like that where you got to kind of watch out for not upstaging people? Or oh yes, I have a sister who, despite all of my you know professional success in the kitchen, I would not dare bring a dessert anywhere near her house for a holiday because she would just sneer at it. <laughs> she would sneer so hard it would melt. Uh, <laughs> So the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> Vivian, it's been uh, it's really been a pleasure chatting with you, and congratulations on your success and thank you going back to Deep Run uh, and making a, a real go of it. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. It was uh, an honor to be on here. I was excited to hear about it, so thank you. That was Vivian Howard, chef and author of Deep Run Roots. The first time I brought homemade nutmeg donuts to coffee hour at our Methodist church in Vermont, I quickly learned that in small towns, the rule is never show off, even if that means making a trip to Dunkin' Donuts. 
So when Vivian Howard returned to Deep Run, North Carolina to open a restaurant, at first she was displaying her fancy New York pedigree. She didn't find success until she started cooking their food, such as her mother's chicken and rice. It's not a looker, but it tastes good. So as the saying goes, once you've seen New York or Paris, it's hard to return to the farm. But Vivian Howard did go back, and she traded Big Light's Big City for a place called Deep Run, a place that she can truly call home. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, pork and kimchi stew. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, South Korea is known for lots of things, like fried chicken. There's over 50,000 fried chicken <laughs> spots in Seoul. Wow. But uh, kimchi, of course. Uh, my wife has cornered the market on it here in Boston. <laughs> uh, it's all over our refrigerator. Uh, also, gochujang sauce, which is quite unique. And they use a lot of pork as well. So pork, kimchi, gochujang sauce. Now we're going to make a stew. That's right. This is a pork and kimchi stew. It's really popular in South Korea. It's usually with pork belly uh, and some pork bones. Uh, what that does is gives us some really nice tender meat, but also the bones will release their marrow and really make a nice viscous broth for us. Uh, it's really hard to find pork belly here. Um, so we were trying to figure out what we could do to kind of mimic that same flavor and have some bones in there, but not with a big hunk of meat. We wanted something a little bit smaller, so it'd be really fast. And you are going to use, let me guess, ribs. Very good. Yeah. Baby back ribs. So that allows us to have um, smaller pieces that will get tender faster and uh, release that marrow and get a really nice flavorful broth. Now, is this typical French technique to make the stew, or how are we doing it? No. So we're not searing anything here. We're really using these really strong flavors to get that kind of complexity. Um, so we're using shiitake mushrooms, but instead of fresh, we're using dried, which we reconstitute. And that gives us a mushroom broth with that liquid that will add a little bit of extra flavor to our uh, soup. And this takes just an hour to cook overall? It only takes 50 minutes to cook these pork huh. ribs because we cut them down into smaller pieces. So you've got this really complex, almost long cooking tasting stew, but in a pretty short amount of time when you're talking about a stew. And the flavor profile, anything else go into it that's interesting? Yeah, so we have kimchi in here, and we actually use it in two different ways. We use it in the beginning with a little bit of the kimchi liquid that it sits in, cooks for a long time in the beginning, and then at the end we add some that uh, makes it a little more crunchy. And the last ingredient is gochujang, which you can't actually find now in all supermarkets. So what does that taste like? It has a really funky taste. Um, it's fermented. It's a little bit spicy. It's kind of almost like nothing else you've ever tasted before. So it adds a really different flavor to this. And this is kind of what makes it Korean. So Lynn Pork and Kimchi Stew takes about an hour. And you get big flavor in about 60 minutes. Thank you. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for pork and kimchi stew at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, our tip for how to make the most out of stale bread. That's after the break. If you enjoy Milk Street Radio, please take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. This helps other people find the show, also encourages them to listen. And thank you. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary 
that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Here is this week's Milk Street Basic. You know, croutons sound old-fashioned, but they're both easy to make, and they can easily transform a salad, a soup, or a stew. Here's the recipe. Start with a loaf of stale bread. Soak big pieces of the bread in a bowl of warm water for 5 to 10 minutes. Wring out as much moisture as possible from the bread, then transfer to a bowl, breaking the bread into crouton-sized pieces. By the way, the size and shape are really not that important. Drizzle with two tablespoons of olive oil, some salt and pepper, and then saute in a nonstick skillet for about seven minutes, stirring occasionally. For more tips and ideas, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. Up next, we find out what Adam Gopnik is pondering today. Adam, how are you? I am well, Christopher. How are you? I'm ready to be amazed by a totally new view of the universe. What do you have and for me you this week? No, I always have one on hand. Now, this is a totally unsolicited testimonial, but I have been reading your Tuesday night dinner book oh. with enormous pleasure Good. and uh, brooding a great deal on the nature of global cuisine. But it made me realize that there's a kind of rhythm of the week that's totally predictable if you cook a lot at home that passes from Monday to Monday. Would, would you care to hear my version of the biorhythm of the weekly menu? Whether I care or not is <laughs> perhaps not, not the issue. But I, I actually, yeah, I think this is interesting. Yes, I would. Go ahead. So I share your sense, and I will, I will concede your priority in sensing that Tuesday night is the new Friday night. Tuesday night is the night when we... Uh, try out our new world recipe. Tuesday night is the night when sort of everybody is gathered together. And Tuesday night is the likeliest night where we actually produce a really good meal that's also in some way innovative, some way something we may not have eaten before. And then we try out our new Corsican or our new Ligurian or perhaps our new Vietnamese recipe on Tuesday night. So I will grant you that Tuesday night is kind of the high point of the culinary biorhythm. Wednesday night, in my experience, and I wonder if you'd agree, is generally tends to be the low point. It's when we try out the recipe we didn't have the nerve to try out on Tuesday night, which turns out to be a total flop. It's when I'm always trying on Wednesday nights is when I try to, to uh, roast fish or chicken in a salt crust. I have been trying to roast chicken and fish in a salt crust for decades and have never yet succeeded. The salt collapses upon the thing I am roasting and fails. Or it's the night when we try something like, I must confess, and I know you have done this successfully, that kind of lacquered Vietnamese fish, kind of fish with a caramel topping. Oh, Again, yeah. I have never had any success in doing fish with a caramelized topping, and my family seems to have remarkably little enthusiasm for fish with a caramelized topping. That's Wednesday night cooking. When we go a bridge too far, we turn one page too many, we try one ingredient too, uh, too few to light up the kitchen. That's Wednesday night. Thursday night, 
is always old home night. It's always nostalgia night. Thursday night is the night when I invariably make something that I was already making 20 years ago. I go back to Pat Wells' bistro cooking, or I go back to uh, stir-frying to the sky, or I go back all the way to Julia and James Beard, and I make a roast chicken, or I make a simple steak with a shallot sauce, or I make salmon with green lentils, but I make something that I knew how to cook long ago. It's obviously a response to the failure of Wednesday night, and Thursday is invariably uh, nostalgia night. Well, when I, when I grew up, it was less uh, intercontinental. We had pasta, spaghetti, every Thursday night with Aunt Millie's. I don't remember Aunt Millie's spaghetti sauce in the jar and an overabundance of dried oregano. Um, ah. and, that, and that, that was our, was our but I you notice it. That it's was the our same meal. principle, right? It's the yep. same principle. It's the principle yep. of Thursday night retreat. Now, maybe the Thursday night retreat for those of us who came along a later Thursday night retreat to Julia Child, or it may be the Thursday night retreat to Chef Boyardee. But Thursday night <laughs> is designed to be a night of retreat. Yep. Friday night, in our household at least, and I wonder if this isn't true about many households, is the night we eat out. Now, we can eat out simply or we can eat out well, but Friday night is generally a nice night to go out for Mexican yep. or Spanish or Chinese or whatever we like. With the proviso, I have to add, that in most families, in which I mean more than three people, um, invariably you end up going out not to the place that everyone likes best, but to the place that no one dislikes intensely. So you have to find the one place that everyone can agree on. And usually that is not the brightest place, not the most interesting place, but the most neutral place. We go out to a place in New York, I will give it no name, where I can get uh, you know, a pasta with sausage and uh, broccoli rabe, and my daughter can get the chopped salad on which she lives, and my wife can get the slightly smaller portion of the chopped salad on which she lives, and my son can get a hamburger. Nobody eats particularly well, but nobody is upset by what they are eating. Um, and Friday night, I think, is designed for that kind of family detente. Saturday night, in my experience, is the most ambitious night of the week. Saturday night is the night when I try out something that's really a little tricky or a little grand or even a little luxurious. It's the one night of the week, in our family at least, when we crack open a good bottle of wine rather than the, the plonk that we drink the rest of the week. And we try and build a meal around that decent bottle of wine. There's invariably flaming on Saturday night, whether it's intentional or not, whether I set something alight by accident or set it alight on purpose, flames leap up on Saturday night. Sunday, and again, I wonder if this is true in your household, Chris, Sunday is braise and stew day. I start a braise or a stew sometime around uh, 11 o'clock in, in the fall. That's sort of, you know, comfortably an hour and a half before football begins. And I will make a uh, whatever it might be. Last week, I made a lamb stew with artichokes in the, uh, in the Greek manner, or it could be a boeuf bourguignon in the French manner, or it could be chili con carne in the uh, American manner. Well, what, but, what you're really saying is what I do, which is I cook a big pot. It could be polenta, it could be beans, it could be a stew, it could be soup, but something that I could repurpose during the week. For example, a meat stew, you could turn into easily a ragu, right, with some tomatoes and put that on pasta. So, so that's, I agree, that's what you do. Chris, you're one step ahead of me because that's exactly the point. That Sunday afternoon preparation, which you eat on Sunday evening, then becomes Monday dinner as well with yeah. some variant. You do it with noodles or you do it with a loaf of bread or you chop it up finer, but Sunday's uh, afternoon braise becomes Monday evening's 
leftover dinner, which is invariably better than the first version that you prepared on Sunday. And you realize now, Chris, that we have seamlessly and effortlessly, or seemingly so, we have now come back to Tuesday. Because Tuesday we have disposed of Sunday's uh, braise or stew, and we are ready, having taken a night off from cooking on Monday, which is another nice thing that the Sunday braise or stew gives you, we are right back ready to turn the pages of a fine cookbook. I mention no names and promote no brands, uh, and find a new and adventurous recipe to make on Tuesday, which will then lead us to overstep the mark again on Wednesday, retreat back on Thursday, dine out on Friday, flame up on Saturday, and stew down again on Sunday. I'm going to have to ask you, which night of the seven do you like the most? Oh, eating out, obviously. That's when I don't have <laughs> of to. Of course, that was stupid. <laughs> when I don't, yeah, right. when I don't have to. Adam, thank you. You've, you've merged so many modern themes, you know, sort of a natural rhythm with the culinary days of the week, eating out, eating in. I, I, I think Tuesday and Wednesday night are my favorites, the more adventurous. And you know what? Saturday night, it matters. During the week, hey, it doesn't matter. That's true, too. Adam, thank you. Thank you, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. Growing up, our family had one night per week that was, in fact, a tradition. A huge plate of spaghetti topped with sautéed ground beef with a blanket of dried oregano. It wasn't pretty, but it was our casual family night around the kitchen table. I've noticed, traveling around the world, that most cultures have a rhythm to their home cooking. You know what to expect on a certain day, a time of year, or during special occasions, Ramadan, Easter, or maybe the Sabbath. America is all about choice, and I'm not convinced that choice is, in fact, at the root of happiness. Perhaps lack of choice, or in other words, tradition, may be the path to well-being. So even today, when Thursday rolls around, I do get hungry for that big plate of spaghetti. So maybe life is about expectation, not experience. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can always download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just remember to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone each week. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. You can find our recipes, watch the new season of our television show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories. And of course, thanks for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsava. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubab Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.